Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. I have had the pleasure of talking to some of the leading authors, artists, activists, and change makers of our time on this podcast. And I want to personally thank you for subscribing, listening, and sharing 100 plus episodes over 100,000 times. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy. And I look forward to more conversations with those important voices that will bring clarity to the situation we find ourselves in as we move toward November of 2024. If you appreciate these conversations and my cultural and political commentary, please subscribe to this podcast in conversation with Frank Schaefer on your favorite platform and to my substack, It Has to Be Said, which can be found at frankschaefer.substack.com. I'd really appreciate the help. Thank you. I'm so glad to be touching base with Frank Schaefer, author of this brand new book that's about to come out. Of course, he's the author of Crazy for God and Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God, Portofino, and some other great books. But your new book is Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy. And I can see that because there's a giant book sitting right behind yeah, you. <laughs> just so, so there's no confusion here. Yes. Is that the giant extra large print for people who really can't see? That's that's the church Bible version. <laughs> The family Bible version. Yeah. So everyone, I've sent out copies of your book probably a month or so ago, and I've yes. finished reading your book. You sent me, someone sent me a, a uncorrected reader's copy, Yeah. and I've been back. going through it. So it's really interesting. Yeah, it's a fascinating topic. I'm interested to, you know, at some point we can throw it open to questions, but just as far as the core argument of the book, I mean, what really struck me about it was that you you talk about how ironic it was that it took a pandemic to get yeah. us to see that not only are our lives so out of whack, but actually the system militates against families, parents, women, grandparents, children. Can you expand a little bit more on that kind of thesis? Yeah. I mean, you know, the title, Fall in Love, Have Children Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, is meant to be provocative mm. because it evokes a traditional family values platform. The fact of the matter is, in the 1970s and 80s, as part of the emerging religious right and anti-abortion movement, what we were selling were fake family values that were actually just a one-note, thinly-veiled misogyny based on this biblical patriarchal idea of men being in charge. So here I am, 40-some years later, doing full-time childcare for my three youngest grandchildren of five grandchildren, Lucy, who's turning 13 on Sunday, uh, Jack, who's 10, Nora, who's seven. And I was already, as it were, living the COVID isolation life by choice in that I was not putting career first. I was putting these kids first. I was enjoying it. I was experiencing uh, motherhood, not in a gender sense, but in the sense of caregiving being the 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 most fundamental part of my life uh, involves seven or eight hours a day with these children during their preschool years and then doing school pickups and so forth. So working backwards from the COVID uh, pandemic, when it started, in essence, COVID forced millions of Americans and I guess people around the world to take a hard look at our priorities, our definition of success. Uh, my daughter, who is the CEO of an investment company in New York, was telling me that for, for the first time, males she was working with, as well as females, were not hiding the fact they had families. 
there's a, you know, bank presidents (laughs) that she was with were, you know, a toddler's running through the back of the Zoom meeting. (laughs) And all of a sudden, it was like the, the life of the family, the life of relationships, whether pair bonded, straight, gay, non-binary, that wasn't the point. Childless people by choice, not the point. The point was people were thrown back on what really matters most, which is the quality of our relationships with other people. So anyway, I had been working on this book for four years before that. And um, I'd thought it was gonna be a year and a half or so project like most books, maybe Mm. two years. But I have sciencey friends who teach in universities and do fancy things and are much more educated than me. And a few of them are good enough friends to read multiple early, early, early drafts. And they kept telling me, you're really on to something here. This needs to be said, but you haven't read enough in the area of neurobiology, evolutionary science, and all the rest. Here's three books to read. Here's five. Here's 10 papers. Here's a symposium I want you to come and listen to online. So all of a sudden, one year, two year, three year, four years becomes five years and almost six years when you fold in the rewrite I did after COVID, because, you know, I'd had one similar experience before, and then I'll shut up and we can get into the book and take questions. But I think you all would be interested in this. I wrote a book once about my son when he went into the Marine Corps, actually co-offered it with him, Keeping Faith, a father-son story about love in the United States Marine Corps. And my agent got 27 turndowns including from publishers that had published other books of mine that had sold very well from them. And the issue was all the same. Who, who wants to read a book about military family from a liberal guy who hasn't even served and who writes works of humor and other things on an evangelical past? What's this got to do with anything? And then George W. Bush did me the favor, the horrible favor of starting two needless wars, one in Afghanistan and one in Iraq. And of course, this is all in the news again now because of our departure from Afghanistan. Well, all of a sudden, a bunch of publishers who weren't interested called back because now they needed something about the military family and they couldn't quite remember what they had talked about and turned down. But, oh, oh yeah, Frank has a book on this. Let's, let's do it. And because of the, the circumstances, the book was taken in an entirely different way. And that was after the fact. So when COVID hit, and people are locked down and toddlers are running through meetings and there are more males doing caregiving and maybe even doing some dishes or something somewhere. Obviously, I took a whole nother look at my book, having done all this additional research for my sciencey friends to back up what I had been writing, uh, which is this mixture of of talking about my grandchildren, but then this whole uh, evolutionary-based idea of what really makes us happiest and most joyful which, by the way, hint, hint, is relationships and not careers. We'll get to that. Um, and then all of a sudden I had a context. This is if we'd gone to war, this time with a virus. And you can't, you know, this is the elephant in the room. Everybody's being forced to do, to, in some measure, resentfully or happily, what I had basically called for in the book. So then I did yet another draft, a 23rd or 24th draft, sent it back to my sciencey friends and they said, yeah, this is good. Now, you know, you're, you're, this is firing That's on all pistons. You got something here. <laughs> uh, my publisher found a, 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 a publishing company that wanted to do it. And, you know, now the book's coming out November 2nd. So that's kind of a thumbnail all over the place, distracted, um, over-caffeinated version here, but uh, forgive me, but there you are. That's the argument. 
Yeah, it's so true. Because when I read the book, I just kept finding myself shaking my head going, my God, I mean, this is so profound. It's so obvious when you look back on the last couple of years, how profoundly things changed for everybody in the world. You know, and I think for me and my family, it definitely did because, you know, you ha- you're forced to reevaluate. Like you said, you can't go anywhere. You can't do anything. You can't, right. you know, everything's closed. There's nowhere to go. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so what are you going to do? And then you think, okay, is what I, ha- has what I've been doing, has that been working? You know, rushing around, rushing to work all the time for what? Yeah. What has it gotten us? Yeah, it hasn't gotten us very much except the yeah. destruction of all life on Earth, potentially with with mm-hmm. climate change and the rest, which is not related, by the way, to females breastfeeding babies in public places. It's not related to gay people getting married and finding love and, and going to bat for relationships being more important in career. It is related to exactly the kind of industrial effort that that makes money for shareholders where a lot of other people lose including the planet in 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 many cases and so you know the 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 context of my book is that we have a loneliness epidemic in the united states all the statistics show it we have a teen and child suicide epidemic in the united states all the statistics are alarming Uh, we have an epidemic of women who wait until their 40s and close to their 50s to try to have a child, often not by choice, but because basically the culture has told them, our version of feminism is a male version of careerism. We're going to change nothing to accommodate you. And if you get serious about your family too soon, you're not going to get that at master's degree. You're not getting that PhD. You're not getting the corner office and you will never be a CEO because we don't take women seriously who, quote, take the risk of getting pregnant You have to clearly prove to us you're putting career first. It's a devil's bargain. And of course, males are into the same compunction. You know, males, as we evolved, as you will see if you read the book, you've read the book and others as they read it. There's absolutely no question that males, as much as females, evolved as caregivers. The proof of the fact, Clint, is that you and me are sitting here. In other words, no matter what our industrial complex has done, no matter what post-19th century corporate ideas have done, the fact of the matter is, The human family only exists because hunter-gatherers and all the rest of us back into the time immemorial were sharers, and it was the survival of the friendliest. And that doesn't mean we're not warlike and we don't kill people and torture them. Yes, we do. But the preponderance is on the side of hope, because none of us would be here if that child by the trail somewhere in the the far-off distant ancestral village had just been left there crying. No, somebody picked that baby up and brought them back to the village and fed them who was a stranger. That's why you're here. I'm here because a guy fell half down a cliff and strangers lowered a vine and he got pulled up. Uh, You know, Jeffrey's here because of the kindness of some stranger on a boat somewhere. There was a, you know, there was a sick woman traveling as an immigrant or whatever it might be. And someone reached out. The only reason the human race has existed is because we are caregivers and our whole evolutionary uh, incentive of love is to keep us being that way. So gay adoptive fathers, all these studies are done in Israel and other places that I've cited in the book showing gay adoptive fathers bonding with their children with the same chemical processes, the same neurological Mm -hmm. measurable facts, the same hormonal measurable facts. The the same oxytocin measurable facts as biological mothers breastfeeding a newborn baby. This is how we evolved. Otherwise, none of us would be here. Now, along comes industrial Western culture, 
and says, hey, we're going to redefine you not by the quality of your relationships, caregiving, faithfulness to community, passing on the torch. We're going to judge you only on one basis, the quality of your career, your ability to make money and have power over others, your job title. That's it. In, in all prehistory and in history, the quality of relationships is what has kept the human race going, but also gives us our biggest emotional and biological and neurological rewards. And that's why we fall in love. And that's why parents don't dash their baby's head against the wall at three in the morning when it's kept them up for six months, because lo and behold, they have that big flooding, wonderful feeling in spite of all the tiredness that kind of wipes away the resentment for another day. So Essentially, what the book does is nothing unusual because all these facts are there. I didn't have to do, you know, I've invented nothing. I am, re- I am not an academic. I am repeating what I hope are some of the better uh, studies and other things that have been done to show what I'm saying is true. And then I'm framing it within the context of storytelling myself about how I changed from this patriarchal dominating, you know, what I call in the book, excuse me, asshole by divine right made that way because of a theology that says you're in charge, discipline children, hit them if you need to, make sure bully your wife, make her conform to you being the head of the household, she should be obeying you. Going into a teen marriage when I got Jeannie pregnant with all that, you know, this is an incredibly bad start. And so the book is also the arc of the journey of repentance and reconciliation of me within a marriage and me within relationships with my children. The difference in being a grandparent coming from a progressive, open, much more um, tolerant point of view and who I I used to be. And then the big backdrop being that my editor demanded because she said, look, you mentioned enough about your dad, so we need to know more. Please rewrite the foreword. Give us the context of the religious right out of which you came to frame the whole argument. So basically, you know, when I write a chapter on feminism and how good it is for for males Mm-hmm. or non-binary people uh, and people who are not female, I'm not writing from a theoretical point of view. I'm writing from the a convert's point of view of someone who lived the other way for a long time and did a lot of damage. And then through a series of steps that some of you folks who've read my books will know about came to change my mind. So that's, mm-hmm. that's it. That's the overarching kind of thing here. And then uh, we can do some questions if you want to go that yeah, idea. Well, I, I love the fact, like you say, you focus on the relational aspect of it. And I wonder, you know, are we going to learn anything? Because you talk about the environment. Look at the environmental impact on, on the world. The environment was yeah. improved during the lockdown. Yeah. Suicides were down. You yeah. know, teen, uh, uh, what was it? Pr- uh, mothers who had babies before their term. Yes. Uh, were, were, Pre- preterm ba- premature baby. Yeah. Premature statistics babies. Dropped off almost way down. Day. Yeah. And then we noticed that in the States, for sure, right around the time that the lockdowns were easing, suddenly we had all these mass shootings happening again, when yeah. we almost had none for the whole year. Yeah. You know, and so many other symptoms were telling us, okay, your priorities are so, and, and it's once you take all that stuff away, look yeah. how things improve. Yeah. And we call that an aberration. You know, there's, a, I think you have a quote from a Goldman Sachs executive that says something like, he told his employees, listen, this whole lockdown thing is an aberration. We need to get back to normal life. And you say, no, that's the aberration. You yes. know, getting, sitting in an office slaving to make money while we're ignoring our 
children and families and grandparents and the environment. And we, we seem to learn nothing. Yeah. And the point beyond that is that for folks who are not pair bonded with no kids, it's exactly the same. This book is not just for parents or grandparents mm-hmm. or care, traditional caregivers. I am making a statement saying that you can be a non-binary, unpair bonded person who never intends on having a child, but you still have a choice. Are you going to be a mother and a caregiver in that sense of the word? I don't mean biologically. Or are you going to be a striver at any cost for position and power? I'm telling you not to do the striving, not because I'm giving you a moral parameter here of what is right to do. I am literally telling you how to be selfish, but in a smart way. Do you want to have your selfishness and survival instinct pay off, or do you want it redirected into a direction which will always fail you, but always, unless you are a narcissistic sociopath, then you'll be okay with it. Then when, uh, if you make a billion dollars, instead of helping anybody, you'll build your own personal space program so you can fly in your rocket. But if you're not that person or someone like him, you will find greater happiness in the things that actually seem a lot less dramatic, like being in line at a grocery store and the person in front of you doesn't have enough money to check out with their cart, and they're obviously in some sort of need, if you step forward and fork over $89.95 out of your wallet and pay for that, those seven bags of groceries, the weird thing is you will actually be happier than Jeff Bezos was in his rocket. And I'm not telling you this because Jesus said so or anybody else. I'm telling you this because every single study of neurobiology tells us that acts of altruism and caregiving are actually measurably by brain waves, by chemical analysis, through blood tests, saliva tests, and all the rest of it, is where it's at. So this whole idea of corporate striving that is sold to us from cradle to grave, parents putting their kids in daycare that is going to feed into kindergartens that are going to feed into this. And then, you know, the ultimate aim is Harvard or MIT and this path. And then you wake up and you're 47, you know, relationships have not been important to you. You don't have a quality of life. You may have a lot of money. Um, This is not, this is not where human beings find joy, never have. So uh, the book is not um, written from a point of view of a moral call to do what is right. The book is written from a point of view of a call to do what is smart, given everything we know about how we evolved. So it's, a, it's really very different than something that you might read on moral philosophy or something like that. Anyway, I'll leave it open. So if there's some questions, we can go there. Yeah, I was just going to say, before we open up for questions, one, one thing I resonated, you mentioned, you know, feeling like you're making up for the time that you spent as an evangelical, you and your dad, which we've talked about before. Right. Uh, making amends and that the pandemic was, you know, allowed you to do that, ironically, to spend yeah. so much time with your grandchildren and to invest in their lives. And you say something like, you know, at the end of the day, it's it's relationships. And then what we put into other people's lives, that's really what's the lasting legacy. It's not necessarily about how much money we made, you yeah. know, and all that. And I thought, man, because one of the things that happened to me this last year, my, my marriage fell apart. We separated in January. Hmm. And part of the discussions, we had a lot of conversations about why it ended. And it was kind of resonated with what you said, because 
I spent, you know, years and years in academics and in ministry pursuing that dream of whatever the evangelical, you know, dream yeah. of making it to some position somewhere, but it ended up basically destroying my marriage. It had a huge yeah. factor in, you know, so I feel like part of that is now I've got to make amends for, you know, all that stuff that I did in that selfish pursuit of, you know, I was pursuing God and crazy for God, as you say, yeah. you yeah. know, so you think, okay, you don't have to, you know, say it's all over now. No, you've got time to make things right. Yes. And, you know, it's not necessarily the end of the road, is it? Hi, this is Frank Schaefer. If you appreciate my cultural and political commentary, please do me a favor and subscribe to my Substack, It Has to Be Said, which can be found at frankschafer.substack.com. You can subscribe for free, or you can kick in a couple of dollars a month and help me out and help me keep this going if you're able. Either way, I'm incredibly grateful for your support and most of all for your participation. We have a lot of work to do to heal our divisions and secure our democracy as we move toward November of 2024. And every subscription helps create, build, sustain, and put voice to this movement for truth. Thank you so much. Yeah, and what we can't make right, um, we can at least warn the next guy down the trail a little behind us. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm, I turned 69 this summer. I'm pushing 70 now. You know, from, from the vantage point of high, hindsight, um, this isn't conjecture or opinion with me. Uh, you know, I'm getting to a stage of my life where I actually know some things. One thing I know is that paradox rules and uncertainty is the way to go when it comes to big philosophical constructs and religion and all the rest of it. But when it comes to, you know, what works with the child, basic kindness, taking time with people, working on a relationship, taking some time off from my writing in the morning to clean the kitchen so that when Jeannie gets up an hour later, because I get up at three in the morning to write and she gets up at around five something, um, something nice will be there. I mean, they, these are not a huge, this is not rocket science. Um, even if you have sciencey friends that tell you to read more books, what you're thrown back on are some basics. And of course, religious people will look at this and say, well, isn't this what Jesus was saying and so forth? And yes, but of course they've got a cart and a horse problem because Human evolution and the evolution of primates basically dictated altruism and kindness long before there was even a written language, let alone a spoken language in which to make religious ideas or claims. And it's the, other, the, the only reason the teaching of some of the, quote, prophets resonates is because it actually happens to fit with what works best for human beings. And so, um, you know, the, the shoe is totally on the other foot when it comes to religion. It isn't that we need religion to tell us these things. The only reason religion has ever resonated is because it is an attempt, a very imperfect and flawed attempt, to formalize a few things that everybody knows works. For instance, the institution of marriage in a religious context basically just tells you that human beings have learned through time that taking relationships seriously is better for the human race than not. Mm -hmm. Male sticking around and helping raise children works better. So, okay, call it marriage. And then religion gets invented and you formalize it. You make it more serious and you make rules and taboos. And then it becomes about sexuality and so forth. But the real point is that evolution has taught us in the same way that it teaches meerkat populations. Where, you know, just look at meerkats if you think that all this came from Jesus, unless they've been reading <laughs> the New Testament. 
I mean, you know, meerkats, if you watch uh, Meerkat Manor, that thing the BBC released about 10 years ago from the, the, the Cam Cambridge University study for 11 years of a little group of meerkats in the Kalahari Desert. If you think that altruism and caring for others is just, we have to be called to it as humans by a higher order, then uh, just go watch the meerkats because um, young teens are assigned babysitting duties while parents go off and forage. It, by the way, it happens to be a matriarchy. The dominant mm -hmm. female runs the whole show. Um, all sorts of things that we come to through sort of moral teach. Well, this is evolutionary survival because guess what? The survival of the friendliest is what everybody's talking about these days, no longer the survival of the fittest because everyone realizes that cooperation is the key, not dominance. Mm -hmm. You can just watch the you know meerkat populations to understand that. So yeah, the meerkat tribes fight each other. They do bad things like we do. They're mean to others, but um, uh, they totally get it when it comes to, it, it takes a meerkat village. Well, it also takes a human village. So right. anyway. All right, we've got a question from Josh in the chat. I don't know if you, I guess I could read it out, but he's, <laughs> sure. he, he's in the Netherlands and this is an interesting thing because I was gonna ask a similar question. You're talking about um, comparing the United States with other sure. developed countries who have a completely different social system. And Josh asks, at some points reading the book, I got the impression you are advocating the establishment of a social democracy in the USA with a decent amount of socialism. At other moments, I got the impression you were doing something more. Could you comment on that? Yeah, I mean, obviously labels are dangerous in that they, they sort of box you in. So I wouldn't adopt a term like socialism, communism, capitalism to try to describe something that was happening to us humans before there was politics. In other words, if you go back into the human ancestral village at all points in all cultures and all tribes, you find the same things. You find that all human females, and yes, I'm going to get a real answer to you. I'm not being an, as smart <laughs> as here, but all human females, whether they're Amazonian tribes or live on 72nd Avenue on the west side or the east side of New York and are very rich, I'll tell you what, they all share something in common. And that is for during the entire evolutionary period that formed humans, human females give birth to premature babies. They have to, because the human brain is so large that if it formed to its full adult size in utero, it would kill every woman instead of just many women in birth. And so we evolved to all be born premature and nine months is premature. We need about a three year gestation to come to full term if we were like other primates and other mammals. As a result, we, to survive, demand, it demands human cooperation and a social network. It demands it. Who feeds the mother while she's feeding the child? Mm -hmm. who, cares for the, who cares for the unit while this is going on? And so, lo and behold, this incredible new human invention came along called the father. Not in a socialist context, not in the context of Sweden or Iceland that pays for high school students who get pregnant to stay in store, school. In the context of cave dwellers and treetop dwellers, fathers were invented. And guess what? The father can't do it either. So all of a sudden, a whole network of grandparenting came into being. What, what Jeannie and I do for our grandchildren is part, those were all back into the ancestral village. You go hunt the antelope, we'll stay in next to the cave, tend the fire and, and keep the baby from crawling into the fire. This has been going on for 
tens of thousands of years before there was writing, before there was politics. That's what we need. We need to recognize that. And in the modern area, we have to say, hmm, who's recognizing not a socialist way of doing things or a democratic pluralistic way of doing things or a religious way of doing things, who is recognizing the basic human survival traits that work and have always worked and it's the only reason we're here and putting those into action in a modern context. Well, Iceland is because if you get pregnant as a teenager in Iceland, they don't give you the choice between abortion or ruin. They tell you if you want that baby, you can stay in high school. We will give you a place to live. If you're not pair bonded, but single, we will give you a stipend until that child herself is in school and we'll take care of you. That's not socialism. That is prime, primeval ancestral village anywhere on the planet you want to look at our evolutionary process. That's what's been going on since we were ever here. It's only in the modern context that that was forgotten. I can prove it in a more in a in an 18th or 17th century context. Long, you know, while Italy was a series of principalities and kingdoms, Siena, Florence, Padua, whatever. Go to any country farm and look how the wings are added to the buildings. If you talk to a grandmother in Liguria, out, you know, somewhere near Carrara or something, and she shows you where she grows up, she'll say, oh, well, that, my grandfather added that part when my sister uh, was pregnant with her first child. And they lived there and the, it expanded because it took a family. Look at the village I grew up in Switzerland with Swiss peasants with sides on the hillside in the 1950s and 60s, pre-mechanized, still in Switzerland even then, believe it or not, horse and cart, women out there. I was sneaking around as a kid, starting to get interested in women, noticing noticing that the, the moms and the sisters were all out there in their big lacy bras working in the sun when their husbands took their shirts off and their sons took their, all laid, loading the, hand, the hay cart. These weren't, they weren't, they didn't have a career. This is just what, families in farming communities did. Mm. They all worked together. And when a kid was born, then the elderly person who cannot be helping out in the field is sitting at home, peeling potatoes maybe, or doing something and making sausage out of the, you know, from the pig that was killed yesterday with the toddlers on playing on the floor. So only when you get to the post-industrial revolution, do we even come into the idea that somehow you've got some, that, that, Socialism, quote unquote, is a modern political philosophy replacing something older. Bullshit. It's the other way around. It is the capitalist, uncaring system without a social safety net that has replaced the entirety of human evolutionary history. And it doesn't work. People aren't happy. Duh. The average American moves 11 times for career reasons and then wakes up one morning and says, my relationship's not working. Uh, I don't know anybody here. I've got a child and I don't even have a babysitter for that child. What the hell happened? Well, grandmother's in Florida because grandpa doesn't want to shovel snow. You're in Toledo. Uh, your sister moved to Los Angeles to pursue an acting career. Um, check anywhere in the ancestral village of evolution and see how see why it is that you now feel lonely because every single bond you evolved like a meerkat to have, meerkats to never survive alone, um, you've, you've torn up and, and you didn't even know you were doing it. 
so yeah, it's socialism, but it's not socialism in the sense of some modern solution to a new problem. It's the other way around. It's that the modern has departed from everything that works for human relationships. So just one example, it's not socialism to say that if a resident at Massachusetts General Hospital this afternoon has a child, she ought to be able to go home and take care of that child for as long as it takes, come back, start a career over again. That ought to be guaranteed by law with no loss of position and no loss of pay. Okay, call that anything you want, but that's no different than somebody in the ancestral village making sure that the woman who stays home in the cave gets a little piece of meat when the hunting party goes out. That's how it's always worked. So um, same thing with interchangeable roles of male and female, non-binary people, gay people, straight people when it comes to childcare. You know, in the United States, we only get social security if you pay into the system as someone who's worked outside of the home your whole life. Otherwise, it doesn't even show up. Wait a minute. Caregiving is the only essential career in the world for others, whether it's professional daycare, a nurse, a doctor, a mom, a teacher. These are the only actual essential careers. Without them, we all die. Everything else is window dressing. So um, you can call it socialism, social welfare, whatever. Basically, it's a, it's a question of how you run the human community to A, survive, and B, have a modicum of joy and happiness and not be lonely. We are social creatures, social beings. Everything in our evolutionary path says to do that. And we've constructed a society that not only tells us not to, if I can be facetious for a minute, it even makes being human uncool. So that to be cool, you've got to not have a relationship in college because you've got to work on getting serious about your career. To be cool, you got to be able to, you want to be an executive or a board member. Uh, you don't want to take time out to have a baby, whether you're male or female. And if you do get parental leave in some tiny little way, a lot of males won't even take it because then they get taken less seriously at work and they're unhappy. So you come to COVID and people are forced a little bit to do what actually is more part of the evolutionary process by mistake, as it were. And um, for a minute, the water's cleaner, the air's free of jet trails. For a golden few seconds, you can see from outer space that even in Beijing, pollution stops, and then it all, quote, goes back to normal. It, we've got to flip that. It goes back to abnormal. It is not normal to destroy your earth. It is not normal to destroy parenthood. Hmm. The truth is we've been sold a bill of goods, haven't we? Yeah, That's so call, the it, truth. call it socialism or anything else you want, but essentially it's just basic human values or you might yeah. say authentic family values, but the yeah. human family, not just child care. Yeah, the whole thing's been flipped on its head, hasn't it? Because I've been going through Kurt Anderson's book, Fantasyland, or um, Evil Geniuses, which is a sequel to Fantasyland. Yeah. And he makes the case that this system didn't happen by accident. It was it was a long, you know, drawn out plans beginning in the 70s and then enacted in the 1980s yeah. by the economic and religious right in America. Yeah. And yet you get to end up with a guy like a Jeff Bezos. You mentioned the other day flying around in his rocket ship. Right. Here's a guy that makes obscene amounts of money. One of the wealthiest men in the world pays yeah. his employees a shit wage and right. he's as, as, as fast as he can. He's putting robots in the Amazon warehouses to replace human employees. That's the world that we live in. And he's yeah. not sharing a, a fraction of his enormous wealth with yeah. even just his employees, let alone what he could do in terms of, you know, 
just donating money to worthy causes. And fighting any u- attempt to even use yeah. it, unionize yeah. miserable employees at all turns because $15 an hour is plenty for you. I mean, yeah. it, it's so absurd. And, and of course, yeah. you know, the difference between executive pay, employee pay, measure it wherever you want. Oh, yeah. In it's totally off the rails. Yeah, it's off the rails. Mm-hmm. Anyway, another question if there's one. Yeah, I know um, Mark in Georgia, he, he messaged me the, the other day saying, I've printed out the book because I sent him the PDF copy. I've got scribbles notes all over the place. It's in yeah, a notebook. Mark. So I'm sure Mark must have some questions and maybe Jeff as well and Wanda. Hi, thank you. Um, yeah, a big question for me is I really like the the standpoint of paradox. Yeah. Um, I've thought about that a lot. I've I come from an old farm family in the South, and even though the form of my I guess transformation may not be the same. The function is kind of the same as where everything I know, my entire culture, the evangelical part, I grew up Methodist. So the technicalities of evangelicism, I don't know, but the behavior is so ingrained in my culture. Yeah. And I kind of, when you, you, you know, you're, you're talking about from, from an animal standpoint, I feel like that one, you know, bird or, or whatever, that just pops their head up out of the herd and looks around and like, right. Oh shit, where are we? <laughs> yeah. And to be, and still to be in this, in the middle of this and, and trying to figure out, you know, violence is just, it's, it's really the only acceptable form of sin in my culture. Yeah. And to, to try to go against, even in the smallest way, the ideology and belief that is pervasive here is you just get these automatic violent reactions. I just wonder, how do you think we could ever really come to the table to with people that are doubling down against being human, against reality? Yeah, I mean, obviously, the, these are just my opinions, and the book doesn't deal specifically with that, although I do have a large section of my chapter on feminism where I talk about the benefits of feminism to me as a male. And I have a very interesting quote from an essay on the kind of testosterone driven level of violence in Afghanistan uh, and, and, and how that all mirrors so much the evangelical culture of violence and gun ownership in the United States. Um, and again, uh, you know, the, the, the kind of a, a relationship of all fundamentalist religion when it comes to excluding the other and so on. So I do get into some of this that gets comes to the level of violence, you know, four times more police die in the United States every year from their own hand by suicide than in the line of duty. All kinds of numbers show us that the most heavily armed are not the safest. If you're interested in impure facts at all, uh, the, 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 you know, there is a high, high level of mortality in homes where gun ownership is a big deal and there are a lot of guns lying around. Um, and that whole culture of armed and defensive comes up. And of, and of course, ironically, it's suicide most of the time uh, of males who have decided they've got to have a handgun or a, an AR-15 and a thousand rounds of armor-piercing ammunition and a you know 100, 100 round capacity magazine. Somehow this makes them safe. They're the ones that blow their brains out. Not all the time, but a lot. Uh, so it, it isn't working very well. And of course, Males in a more feminist culture or in a relationship with a woman um, uh, that brings a a whole different kind of value and equality to it actually do better. And there's studies I cite 
So the issue of the kind of testosterone-driven American violent gun-owning culture, the sort of Southern thing, um, you know, this is being tried in other places. This is who the Taliban are in Afghanistan. It is exactly the same thing. And once you get into a generational cycle, it's very hard to break. So there, there is a solution, however, and it's not a political one. It's that within the context of childcare relationships and or even not as a parent, but as a teacher, or not even as a teacher, but as an uncle or a friend, or a person in society who, who works with younger people in some capacity. We have an opportunity as males, I'm speaking as a male here to you, uh, to pass on a completely different point of view. And the only way to do that is through how we behave. So I happen to own a gun. I've got a 20 single shot, child's 22, that's probably 40 years old, uh, at, that once in a while I have to use when I have a sad choice between losing everything in my garden or just half of it to some rabbits. Okay, that's my idea of being armed. Um, it would not do, you know, you know, this is not even a home protection weapon. This is just like having a hoe or a shovel if you decide you're a carnivore. And once in a while, I have to do something about a particularly large woodchuck family that's decided to move in, into my potato field and live there and eat everything. Okay, so I have a 22. That's not being armed in the sense that American males these days, when you talk about the gun culture, um, and if someone took my gun away and a new law was passed, they, they were, I could lose it without a ripple. I just would have to plant twice as many potatoes next year. So anyway, there is that. But my grandchildren see me more often in the kitchen cooking their food after dinner cooking, because I love to cook, than they do almost in any other role. So that my grandson Jack and my grandson Ben have grown up with a quote male, okay, who's not trying to be touchy-feely or Oprah-esque or connect with everybody or overly, quote, you know, sensitive, whatever. But their idea of what a male does, males cook for you. Males are polite to their wives in front of you. Males say sorry when they lose their temper and shout at you and really mean it. Um, males take you to the art museum. Males take you to the beach and bring a shovel so you can build a really good castle. Um, you know, males talk about the osprey and the birds in our garden and nature around you. Males show you beautiful things. And when a grandson or granddaughter asks me, you know, what grandparents do or what's most important to them, I can look them honestly in the face and to say, to give you the most beautiful memories of your lifetime. That is my job, Nora. Okay. And mean it. And then really work at that. So it's not childcare as in I'd rather be doing something else. It's childcare as in not even a vocation through a sense of duty. It's childcare from a male who understands that mothering another human being is the highest level of pleasure of my life because it results in a relationship uh, that I talk about, say, in the book with Lucy, who sat here with a laptop just before this one talking to my mom while she was dying. I'd just been over there to be with my mother when she died. I visited regularly and of course I missed it and she died when I wasn't there. But we had a couple last conversations and Lucy's with me sitting on my lap at three then, she's like 13 now. And I told her, I'm very sad. You know, when my mom died, I said, You're, I'm very sad, Lucy. And she thought about it for a minute and she put her arms around my neck and said, but you, you have me. Hmm. And 
That, that is the answer to all life's problems. But you have me. Okay, meerkats know that. Humans know that. Any wise man knows that. If you're living a life, that means that you have a lot of people around you and you are to them the same thing that put their arms around your neck when you lose your mom and say, but you have me. And if that's their daily experience of you, okay, um, then you are living an existence which is the answer to violence because you are, you are building a series of human memories with those children and with those young people by example, that you are there for them, not as a distraction on your way to something important. They are the important thing. And I honestly believe, you know, you cannot guarantee anything. But if, for instance, through this book, uh, fall in love, have children, stay put, save the planet, be happy, a tiny percentage of American families began to refocus on the importance of being that person who says, but you have me, or receiving that love, and really began to live intentionally in that way. Not seeing their career as driving everything, but seeing these relationships driving everything. We would change something. We would become a movement. You know, there, there used to be a time when it was respectable in America to be a racist. It wasn't just that there were racists, it was respectable. You could tell racist jokes, it was fine. And then little by little, by example, people change that. So now at least you have to pretend you're not one in most society, not so much in, in you know, white Trump circles, but in most American society, it, it just wasn't cool anymore. I mean, so I can say with this book, I would really like to help be part of a movement that long after I'm gone, uh, I will have contributed to slightly to make it uncool to be a real asshole when it comes to family relationships just Maybe like you should have that as your title yeah it is uncool to be <laughs> a real kidding. asshole when it comes to family relationships because if you can change fashion a little bit it, it, it you know then it it you're, you're in a culture where where you have changed the sort of vibe of the aim of things a lot shifts it's not just legislative although i have a real legislative agenda in the book it's what's cool to do so if being a cool young male is to indulge in some form of extreme sports and you're jumping off mountains and helicoptering to the top of the Swiss Alps, okay, that's fine. But if that's it, if that's all that being cool is, that's a pretty empty life. It's not gonna go anywhere. It's sad. And if you think doing a startup in Silicon Valley is cool or working for Facebook is cool somehow, and that's what you wanted to do, but you let your girlfriend go because now she was in Ohio and didn't wanna move with you and you put this other shit first, you're gonna regret it. So I want to make being human cool. I want to make uh, legislative changes. But above all, I want to change the cultural, I want to change the discussion. I want to change the discussion back to what really makes people happy. Not what does your, what do shareholders want from you? And what lies are they telling you from the time you're born until you die to keep you in their system? And I think that's, yeah. that's the answer to the violence in our culture. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. How do you change it? Because it's so um, systemic, isn't it? Again, you change you're going, it by having yeah. a lot less really unhappy, pissed off people. Mm -hmm. I really yeah. sympathize with the unattached, pissed off, mass shooter, male, deranged, crazy son of a bitch. Yeah. 
everything in our culture has mitigated to make him that way and keep him that way. Mm-hmm. Where are his good memories? Where were the people who put him first? Where was the quality education? Where was the bonding process? Where was the relationship? Where, where was his family when he needed them? They were working three jobs to just put bread on the table in a culture that didn't even give a shit about their kids while talking about family values. Yeah, so that's it. That's the deal. So you want to stop mm-hmm. violence in this culture. You don't want people voting for strong men like Trump and being deluded. Then give them real family values that have nothing to do with getting married young like I did and having kids. It can be part of that, but have to do with the kind of support I received in the crazy little fundamentalist community I was in called Labrie Fellowship. Jeannie and I were pregnant at 17 and 18 together. And we were given a free place to live for five years. Medical bills were paid. We could eat in the communal dining room. We had no, no, never even had to ask for a babysitter if we wanted to go out to lunch or dinner together because there was always somebody in the community. The upside of our crazy little evangelical community was that it was supportive of actual family values. Now, when it went out to try to force that on on the world through anti-abortion measures, that was a different thing. But hey, give credit where credit's due. Even if you're in a crazy little cult and they happen to be nice to a young couple, Take what you can get. Take so, what you can get. Yeah. So I experienced, quote, socialism when I needed it. Yeah. In a, in a wacky you. community. But hey, we did have that. Yeah. And it probably saved you. It certainly saved your marriage, I'm sure, wouldn't it? Yeah. And I mean, it set us on a path where uh, caring for people and putting, putting those around you first was a no-brainer. I mean, it works really well. Mm-hmm. You always know who to call. That's it. Well, do we have any last questions? I know um, yes. we got Jeffrey and Wanda that haven't thrown anything in there yeah, yet. Jeffrey guys... and Wanda, we can grab a, more yeah. questions. We got no, a quick quote of time here. Jeff, what's yeah. up? Um, yeah, just a quick quote from the book that was maybe one of my favorite passages. Uh, just two or three sentences. Childless Jane has been successfully parenting my children hmm. and grandchildren from the grave. Her epigenetic impact has outlived her by several generations already. And just a little background, Frank, I know you know this, and, and Clint, but Childless Jane was, if I recall correctly, a, uh, a same-sex partner figure that was very quiet about that part of her life. I don't think you picked up on that, but her love of the arts, love of opera in particular, and her relationship with her partner, hmm. as it was modeled for you, was a profound they did not have children from what i recall yeah um i, I same I, they were same sex but also didn't have children that that was a parenting model they parented you they did and I, I i think i think one of the takeaways i've gotten of many in the book and i look forward to going back and rereading it is you know in the title of your book is have children it, I, i'm having this is such a simple breakthrough but it's i do, I do not have kids yeah, my wife and I do. But the idea, I think you're helping me, Frank, and and this book is helping me. Having children is something I can still have. I have the yes. ability to have children. Any yeah. any comment or response on that? Totally. And basically from page one on the book all the way to three end, you know, there's two ways to recognize something. A token, as in some of my best friends are black. You know what I'm saying? Like tokenism <laughs> or you really mean it. Well, I really mean it. My son, Francis, is 50 years old. He does not have any children. He is a high school teacher. 
He has far more children than I do because when he's mm. doing extra math tutoring, kids he tutors all talk about the fact that he cooks lunch for them first. Then he has a tutorial group having served them a really good meal. Kids can't get over this because Francis, my son, cooks for them, then does tutorials and then does his robotics club with them and so forth. He has as many, he has as many children as consistently in his life as I do. And you don't have to be a teacher to do that. Jane Stuart Smith was an opera singer who came to Labrie and became a worker and was in this same-sex uh, marriage for her whole life. She and Betty uh, got old together, died together. I mean, did the whole thing that married couples do for 50, 60 years. I would go visit her in the chalet that she was in. She was a Labrie worker. My parents, not being religious, right, fanatic, crazy people, were very, very kind to people who, to them, I'm sure they understood more was going on than it was just two, quote, nice spinsters living together, as they would have put it. Uh, there was a lot of little fiction and uh, stuff going on. But when I look back on the people who have changed my life, I mean, actually shaped it. There are, there's my mom. There's, a, there's one teacher in a, in a private British boarding school I was put in, uh, Eunice Park. And there's Jane. And Jane, uh, I saw Jane every day from the time I was five years old until I was, until until like years later when I stopped by in Roanoke and saw her and Jane would play me opera and Jane would show me art and Jane would talk to me and Jane would feed me and Jane would be kind to me and Jane would take my side. Jane was a mother. She mothered me. My granddaughter, Nora, and I tear up when I think about this. I play her bits out of the opera of Norma, the Castadiba, and I say, I first heard this at your age with Jane Stort Smith. She knows who Jane is. And Jane is dead and long gone. Jane is in that room when Nora listens to Bellini's Norma. Jane is in that room when I'm in a car listening to classical music and a piece of, of, of music comes on and Jack chimes in at age 10 from the back seat. That's the overture to the magic flute. He knows that because Jane made that important to me. All the beauty and love of memory being passed on to a little boy right now that is not craving an AR-15, <laughs> but knows what the overture to an opera sounds like while being a little guy, that's Jane mothered me. So in fact, mothering and parenthood, have children fall in love. You can fall in love and not be pair bonded because you fall in love with helping and caring for people. You can have children and never, quote, have a baby. You can stay put in the sense of being committed to a community and not be pair bonded or in a family or a church or anything else. You can save the planet by choosing to put relationships and caring ahead of work and you will be happy. Jane was a very happy person. She wasn't sitting around mourning the fact she did not have a child. She had children. She raised children by influencing people in her life, all ages, including a five-year-old little boy who would sit down there and listen to Bellini's Norma and, and look at, at, at Peter Bruegel, the elders, pictures uh, of weird things going on that I never saw anywhere else. And Jane would say, okay, look at this. You'll be interested in this. 
Jane Stuart Smith changed my life. Jane Stuart Smith was one of my mothers. We all have more than one mother. And some of our mothers are males. And again, this isn't being a gender clever nothing. This is just using mothering as a way to describe it, an activity. So I'm really glad you picked that out of the book because it's a huge deal to me. And I make a big point in the book of talking about my various mothers, mm. male and female. And some of them had no children of their own, but they were very much in the have children business. I love there's that. A, yeah. I was going to say there's a, there's a, uh, in the chat, Wanda's got a, a point, a really good point. She says, from my life, you women have been doing these things. I think she, you might mean mothering and that that's maybe hardwired in. I don't know. But she says, I feel maybe the book is addressing a male problem in parenting rather than most of the females in my realm of influence. Yes. And you do talk about the toxicity, certainly of the evangelical culture. I mean, it's ironic right now that, that Christianity Today is doing this podcast series on Mars Hill Church in Seattle, my hometown, Mark Driscoll. And one of the legacies of that whole megachurch movement was the absolutely toxic male muscular Christianity that Mark Driscoll preached for so many years and the damage even now, years and years later, that that is still causing, yeah. you know? So and it's, if, it's you a, listen it's to what Dris- if you listen to what Driscoll said about women and, and the, the, you know, that women owe you their sexuality and all this bullshit, it was literally, he could, you could t- tear a page from what the Taliban does. Yeah. I mean, they are the American Taliban. And, mm-hmm. and, and so I'm a tiny part of the pushback, but I come out of that as having been right where those guys were, uh, but uh, not only having changed my mind, but very much on the other side of things. But Driscoll's an example of someone who, if you put a turban on his head and he grew a big enough beard like yours and stuck, <laughs> stuck him in Afghanistan, he'd be right at home. Yeah, yeah. I mean, those, says- those, those, guys, those guys would have an immediate rapport with everything the Taliban thinks about women. They would mm-hmm. phrase it a little differently, but it's, this, it's exactly the same thing. And it's not coincidental that there's big Orthodox Jewish communities in New York that don't let their women get educated, that don't even let yeah. them learn how to speak English. Yeah. They speak Yiddish so to keep them in the home, to keep them out of the public view. Look, this is the sickness of fundamentalist religion, and it's global, and it's interreligious. There's a kind of ecumenism of horror when it comes to the way fundamentalists are very similar and almost interchangeable in their views of of a woman's place. So, you know, my book is obviously as far away from that as I can possibly move it. And um, uh, essentially very much directed as an answer in part to that horror. Um, And I hope it's more than that. It's true. And I saw a tweet the other day. I don't know if it was facetious, but the, the tweet said, Look, the Taliban wants to ban gay marriage, ban abortions, and put women in their place, submitting to their husbands. Maybe we've been fighting on the wrong side this whole time. You know, yeah. from an evangelical point of view, that pretty much fits. Yeah, sadly so, enough, yeah. I doubt that it would be facetious because it's exactly yeah. the same reason that there's a huge that that um, cast in a slightly different light a huge following for uh, Vladimir Putin. Mm-hmm. As well as Trump and Viktor Orban in Hungary amongst evangelicals and Fox News. They love it. It's their kind of guy. Yeah. Strong, conservative, uh, anti-gay, anti-woman and so forth and so on. So sadly enough, the religious right in the United States that I used to be part of and, and, and so shamefully contributed to some of the power that it has now in the projects we made. um, 
is uh, interchangeable with the Taliban when it would come to the result of what yeah. kind of theocracy they would run. It would be exactly the same. It would mm. be a little different here and there, but it would be the same deal. Yeah, the core. Well, I can see Wanda's unmuted. Do you have one last well, question you wanted to say? I, I, I was just going to comment because uh, uh, I, my husband was a second marriage. So when I had my three children, I had a stepson living with me who his dad worked. He was a principal of the school. So he worked and, you know, seven to seven. And um, my stepson changed so many more diapers than my husband hasn't in his entire life. Hmm. And um, he's not a perfect husband, but my stepson and his wife, they married later in life. They were in their mid thirties and they had managed to squeeze three children in, <laughs> in that time, just one right after the other. And the way they did their marriage was so different from mine. And so my stepson had that feminine side that he was the mothering side because I had no one else. Yeah, because my mother lived too far away, and so I wondered the influence of that on him. He babysat when I had to. I was taking classes. He had to keep the kids, so I, you know, he takes a lot of credit for that. Um, I'm sure that things didn't run as smooth as had I been there because he was still a young teenager by that time. But um, in the way his marriage runs, you know, one night he bathes, gets all the kids bathed when they were smaller and his wife was in charge of cleaning up the dishes. And then it flipped the other night. One read the stories and the, it was so sharing. Mm -hmm. And I think it was more natural to him, first of all, because his wife was, was actually older mm. and she would have no, none of that nonsense. Right. <laughs> because she, at their first of their marriage was working full-time as well. And, and so that come home, whereas when my husband would come home at seven at night, he ate what I had fixed for dinner, even though I had was a school teacher and came home just a few hours ahead. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> and then he would be reading the paper, trying to relax while I was getting everything ready for the next day for the kids to go to school. Yeah. And my stepson had to be a part of all that because he was older. Yeah. And so I think that modeling to break that modeling where the need for it's like both of us are, even if you are stay at home mother, yeah, you are, or a stay at home father, you yeah. are working all day. Yes. And you need help at the end of the day. Mm -hmm. Whereas this, cause so people say, well, I, I, women have to say, well, I don't work. I stay at home. I don't know. <laughs> You work, you work very hard all day with no breaks. Yeah. And so the, I think the example, so I'm proud of my stepson. He annoys me in some ways, his life choices, but his um, just jumping in, changing sure. diapers, feeding babies, taking turns at night. You know, my, from he didn't see that, he didn't see that modeling from his dad, but he actually learned how to do all of that. Yes. People can make so choices. It was a good situation for him. Yeah, people I, now can make I choices. Think. Yeah, now in the case of my wife and me, you know, we've been we've been together now for fifty two years and celebrated our fifty first this year. But she really had both of those kinds of husbands because she had me at the beginning 
being very much in the mold of the kind of fundamentalist, evangelical, reformed Calvinist guy, you know, the women are supposed to do this and the men do that. And But uh, A, she was very brave and hung in there and, and changed my mind and was a great therapist combined with, you know, uh, just being very, very stubborn in a great way that I talk about a little in the book. But what, what's interesting to me is how much happier I've been when I have not been that guy. So that, you know, it's not just a question of doing this because somebody tells you you should. If you're smart, you come to this because, um, I mean, duh, no brainer. But if you want to be happy and you're in a relationship, if the person you're with is not happy, duh, you won't be happy. So, you know, working to make someone's life joyful is actually the way to be most selfishly happy yourself. This is not mm -hmm. this is not rocket science. When it comes to kids, of course, younger parents, what they don't get is how short that diaper changing, who reads the story part is, and how much of your life you spend looking back to those <laughs> golden days when the kids were little and they were really yours and not out there doing all this stuff and not seeing you. So actually, all of us with the longevity of the modern life cycle for most of us, are going to spend, no matter whether we have our own children or not, we're going to spend most of our lives as childless. Um, and then you get this little respite when you have a grandchild. So, you know, we got it completely the other way around. It's the biological clock is the thing that has a fuse lit, like a bomb in it. And not just for women, for everybody. The same with the relationship clock. You don't have much time to put things together. But you're going to, excuse the language here, but you're going to have some fucking job your whole life. <laughs> So concentrate on this very ephemeral, short little period of time with young children. This short time you have with a, in, a, in an early marriage phase or relationship or falling in love, that's the stuff that's just gone like smoke into the thin air. I mean, it's so fast, even with long childhoods because of our big brain babies. What lasts forever is trying to earn a living, pay the bills, do this stuff. So, wow, you know, move that to the back burner every chance you get when you've got a relationship or whatever it is. And then your point, Jeff, about have children, there's a hook in that title because I want it. It's sort of like my book, Why I'm an Atheist Who Believes in God. That's on purpose. How can you do that? Are you mm -hmm. telling me that I've got to have kids? Oh, I'm glad you asked. Because what I mean by motherhood and having a child is really different than what you're normally going to hear. And it's not to do with necessarily traditional pair bonded relationships. I'll give you an example right now in my own life. Um, Ernie Gregg is my producer. And he does all my online webby stuff like we're doing here. This is set up by my good friend Clint. But in most cases, it would be Ernie who would be doing all this and set it all up. And he does all my Facebook stuff. I write all my own posts, by the way, for better or worse, but he organizes all this. And I've got this in conversation with Frank Schaefer podcast going now, and we've interviewed 20 people. And we got 40 more lined up. It's all going great. Shh, don't tell anybody, but it's a way of promoting my book. That post, <laughs> pay no attention to the poster behind me. Oh, the giant book, you mean? <laughs> the giant book. But um, the fact of the matter is, Okay, so Ernie's gay and Ernie's married to, to uh, someone who's a pastor. So there's a lot of familiarity there for me because his husband is a pastor. Rock is a pastor. Ernie's gay. Ernie is a, quote, employee in some technical sense that um, I pay him for his work. 
but um, Ernie is a friend of mine who mothers me too. And he's younger than me, but he mothers me because he knows that I can't think of more than one project at a time. And so he could get pissed off and say, look, I've sent you your week's schedule. It's all there, all the Zoom links and everything. You, you know, why can't you just find, but he doesn't. He sends me the reminder like you did very nicely, Clint, an hour before we did this saying, I'm reminding you because you're compassionate and you're mothering. <laughs> and all joking aside, when, a, when, a, when one man does that for another man, who's a grown up, like I'm pushing 70 and I can't keep a schedule, you can either say, but I sent you that last week or you can mother me. And at that point, you're treating me like a nice mom when their kid forgets his lunch at school and she says, no matter, I've got another lunchbox for you. That's mothering. So that's how you get a nonviolent culture because you have enough interventions in your life from people who do that, simple, decent kindness. They mother you instead of putting you down by saying, oh, I sent you that last week. Uh, Ernie doesn't do that to me. You don't do that to me, Clint. I don't do that mm. to people if I can help it. Um, mm. So, you know, basically, the, when you talk about having children, I'm talking about make everyone you are with and work with in a professional relationship, a casual relationship. If you go through life mothering people, you are treating the people around you like a child. I don't mean condescendingly, like they treat them like children. I mean, you treat them the way you treat somebody who you have a genetic connection to, who is a child of yours. And if you treat them that way, you are gonna have a whole series of good relationships across the board. So if you meet a neighbor, when I'm out walking my dog in the morning and I meet a neighbor, I have many neighbors, I've been in one place long enough so I know them. I know enough about them to ask them actual questions about how they are, how's that daughter of yours? Cause I happen to know the daughter's been ill, whatever. At that moment, they are my children. They can be older than me. They can still be my children. It's the way of looking at a relationship as a nurturing, caregiving relationship. And so just like with our own kids, we don't treat them perfectly and you have lapses, but it's a philosophy of life. And if you don't want a violent culture, start treating the, your neighbors, literally your neighbors and your children or your children who aren't yours, but they're your children in other ways, as your children, as if you have that pair bonded connection, make them part of your little meerkat tribe there in the Kalahari desert, look out for their kids, look out for their interests. This is the only way we're gonna rebuild our culture. Call that socialism if you want to, when the government sends you a check when you're in retirement so you can help with your grandchildren, great. Call that socialism. Uh, Jeannie and I get social security now and Medicare, which is one reason we've been able to ease back on the money-making part of our lives. Um, so that can be part of it. But you know, when you start looking at relationships as if they are the relationships of family, rather than that's the other tribe, those are strangers, I'll, I reserve this decent behavior for these three people I'm close to, it changes everything. And people look at you different. There's a, I'll shut up in a minute, but there's a guy who lives here on, in my little community in Salisbury, who uh, flew his flag upside down when Obama was voted elected and had a huge Trump sign on his lawn. And basically if a local person's running, um, whatever, whoever town council he's supporting, our shorthand in our family's always been, and I won't tell his name, whoever XYZ is supporting, just vote for the other guy. You, are, you, know, you never even have to go down to town hall and find out anything. 
He happens to be one of my best friends here on where I live. He's a welder who builds beautiful metal sculptures. He's had a lot of family problems. His children, one of his children died. They've never had any money. They've always had trouble. I stopped buying my work clothes because I do a lot of building like you do, Clint, with your teaching mm -hmm. instruction. You know, I'm a builder too. So he sees me all sweaty with a measuring tape. I go over and ask him stuff. He welds the shit for me. We have a, we have a, a, he's one, I'm one of the people on, in my neighborhood he likes best. He doesn't get on with very many people. He's a feisty, cantankerous, far right, crazy guy. He likes me. He doesn't know I do, he doesn't watch any of this stuff. I mean, he knows I'm a writer. That's about it. Um, really tough customer. But the thing is, we have found a, we have found a bunch of pl places we communicate together um, about the changes in the neighborhood, about how his children and grandchildren are. He loves my grandchildren. He, oh, he knows their names. Nora has been pestering since she was five to teach her to weld. He mm -hmm. tells her he'll teach her when she turns 10. He's going to teach her. And she asks him all the time. The fact that I have a granddaughter who knows his name and wants to learn welding from him, the fact that I care about construction and I don't just talk about stuff. Um, you know what? When I see all that crap on his lawn, you know, flags flown upside down because we have a black president, my reaction is not to hate him. Uh, it's to smile because he's such a feisty maniac. I mean, he's crazy, but I'm crazy too. And we've met, on, we've met on another level. I mean, thanks yeah. God for talking about rebar and how much cement to put in concrete mix and all the rest of it. We have a whole relationship. Well, that wouldn't be possible if I was going out there only with a political agenda or only he's so different, he's not my guy. And by the way, I, I tweet awful stuff about white evangelicals. I'm not a nice guy. I'm not saying that I have a touchy-feely, lovely thing. But the people that I've connected with here in my neighborhood I have a decent relationship with, not because I'm some special person, but just because we've stayed, we stuck around long enough, we know each other's children. There's a community here, even involving people you don't get on with. And um, mm -hmm. that's what my book's calling for. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, if he had a problem, he'd call me and I would do the same thing. Mm -hmm. And if, and if I want, and if I want to build a, an outside grill and, you know, whatever, and I need a piece or something welded, he'll, he'll make it for me. Hmm. So that's how you that's how you roll that's yeah. having that's making everybody around you your child and that says a lot about maybe healing some of the deep divisions in america isn't it i mean like yeah. you said if you want to focus on political stuff you're never going to get anywhere especially now yeah but there's got to be a way to fix this stuff well listen it's been a little bit more than an hour i know we got to get going uh josh is yeah. saying it's getting late there where he's at in the netherlands but the book is Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy by Frank Shaper. Should be coming out in early November. Yeah. So you can pre-order it on Amazon as well. Is there any other place you could suggest Amazon, that people the, would find it? Yeah, they'll find it in bookstores and all the rest. And I love my little independent bookstore and I like to read on paper. But if you pre-order on Amazon, you will help the book many times more than any other way you buy it. Later, buy it anywhere you want because people look at the the, mm -hmm. the numbers, whether they're reviewers or bookstores ordering books, it'll be in more independent bookstores, little mom and pop bookstores, if you pre-order on Amazon, because they're going to order based on the Amazon numbers. Isn't that a crazy world? Mm -hmm. So if you want to do me a favor and you like what I'm saying, pre-order the book on Amazon and also uh, check out the podcast in conversation with Frank Schaefer, because we talk about things there too. And Clint, thanks so much for having me. 
Yes, I've absolutely loved chatting again, meeting up again. We are going to do a podcast on this book, I think, at some point as well. So I'll be tapping you back again and we can spend some time taking a deep dive. But thank you, everybody, for reading the book, for the good, thoughtful interaction. People have pre-ordered the book. I'm seeing in the chats already. I see Wanda saying she pre-ordered it. Thank you, Wanda. Thank you very much. And by the way, if there are any book clubs out there that you know about, international or American, Zoom, whatever, Mm -hmm. you know, this has been a book club today. I'm happy yeah. to do that. There's no Absolutely. limit on that. So I'll, I'll, I'll be anybody that pre-orders the book or whatever. I'll do a book club meeting for you, Zoom, whatever, because uh, I want to talk about these things. All right. That sounds like a plan. Thank you so much, Frank, and everyone else for dropping in. We'll be speaking to you again. And best of luck with your new book. Thank you. And Jeff, I'm sorry you're not going to be at Wild Goose. Get into next year. Yeah, please. And anybody who's here today, all of you guys are friends. Please, anybody, uh, email me anytime you want to talk. Whatever we can zoom or talk, or you can we can exchange. Um, I'd love to talk to you all again. Yeah, that would be great. Thank you so much, Frank, and everyone. We'll be speaking to you again. Take care. Bye bye. Bye bye. In conversation with Frank Schaefer is a production of the George Bailey Morality and Public Life Fellowship. It is produced by Ernie Gregg and hosted by Frank Schaefer, author of Fall in Love, Have Children, Stay Put, Save the Planet, Be Happy, a post-pandemic blueprint for rebalancing work and family in favor of love and living. To learn more and support the show, please visit lovechildrenplanet.com.